Hello, a very warm welcome to all talks of the World Sepsis Congress Spotlight, Sepsis, Pandemics, and Antimicrobial Resistance, Global Health Threats of the 21st Century. Over the next six weeks, we will release all sessions from the Congress here weekly on Tuesdays. Today, we are getting started with Session 1, the opening session. If you want to listen to one specific speaker, please use the chapter markers. If you want to see the presentations of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for WSC Spotlight there. Now, let me hand it over to my colleague, Simon Finfer from Australia, member of the Executive Committee of the Global Sepsis Alliance, to get us started. Uh, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. My name is Simon Finfer. I'm a critical care physician from Sydney, Australia, and I'm a member of the Executive Council of the Global Sepsis Alliance. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to this uh, very important meeting, uh, which is a, a joint meeting which we're delighted to host with the World Health Organization on sepsis, pandemics, and antimicrobial resistance three very important global health threats for the 21st century. Um, and it's my honour to, first of all, um, introduce and hand over to uh, Professor Hanan Bakhi, who is a Assistant Director General of the WHO in charge of the Antimicrobial Resistance Programme, uh, to welcome you on behalf of the WHO. Hanan. Thank you, Simon. Good morning, everybody uh, from, uh, from all around the world. And thank you, Simon, for the introduction. I would like to welcome you all to the World Sepsis Congress Spotlight, where we will, over the day, discuss sepsis, pandemics, antimicrobial resistance, and how they are linked. We are thrilled to announce that we have over 9,000 people from at least 178 countries who have signed up to participate in our Congress today. COVID-19, the pandemic of the century, has proven once again to all of us that diseases are not to be siloed, and the interconnectedness between diseases will reveal itself one way or another. We started to plan for this event actually over a year ago, focusing on sepsis and AMR only. But today, as we all know, the world is a different place. COVID-19 has not only led to close to 28 million infections, and almost another million in deaths, COVID has ignited extra cases of death from both and antimicrobial resistance. Sepsis itself affects close to 50 million individuals, and in 2017 alone, 11 million people died from this disease. However, it is still fundamentally misunderstood that sepsis is the final common pathway for death from the vast majority of infectious diseases worldwide. But the reality is sepsis can be prevented. And what goes a long way in the prevention of sepsis are education and awareness. That is why we have gathered here today, just four days before the ninth World Sepsis Day on September 13th, to jointly learn, educate, raise awareness on this disease. Today, this special World Sepsis Congress Spotlight will be joined by renowned experts from around the world to discuss and highlight the challenges of the pandemic, the global board burden of sepsis, and innovative approaches in combating sepsis and AMR. Not only that, but this Congress is a special event because the WHO 
launches the first global report on sepsis epidemiology and burden. But before we start, I would like to sincerely thank everybody who contributed to make this event possible. The Global Sepsis Alliance for organizing this Congress jointly with the WHO, led by my co-program uh, co chair, Professor Conrad, uh, Conrad Reinhardt, all speakers and chairs who've agreed to participate and everybody behind the scenes who made this possible, especially uh, Dr. Alessandro Cassini and Paul Rogers from the World Health Organization and Marvin Zeek from the Global Sepsis Alliance. So not to take up too much of your time, I wish you all an enjoyable Congress. And Simon, I give it back to you. Thank you, Helen. Um, so our first um, formal presentation this evening is a recorded one, and it's, it's from Dr. Tedros Adhanam Ghebreyesus, who I'm sure everyone knows is the Director General of the WHO. Dear colleagues and friends, I'm proud to introduce this World Sepsis Congress Spotlight on Sepsis, Pandemics and Antimicrobial Resistance. The outstanding range of speakers will review achievements, challenges, and potential solutions to combat the threats posed by AMR and sepsis globally. They will also provide an overview of the lessons learned and challenges from the COVID-19 pandemic and recent Ebola outbreaks and the implications for sepsis research. Colleagues, we need action on sepsis, and we need it now. Globally, sepsis contributes to the deaths of an estimated 11 million people each year, many of them children, and it disables millions more. This is approximately 20% of all global deaths. Sepsis preys on the most vulnerable, newborns, pregnant women, and the poor. Almost half of all global sepsis cases occur in children with an estimated 20 million cases every year. For every 1,000 women giving birth, 11 will experience infection-related severe organ dysfunction or death. The first WHO Global Report on Sepsis shows that efforts to control this health crisis are being seriously hampered by large gaps in data particularly in low- and middle-income countries. We must step up efforts to improve data on sepsis so all countries can prevent, detect, and treat this terrible condition promptly and effectively. This means strengthening health information systems and ensuring access to rapid diagnostic tools and quality care, including infection prevention and control, and safe and affordable medicines and vaccines. If sepsis is not recognized early and managed promptly, it can lead to septic shock, multiple organ failure and death. This is the same organ dysfunction that is experienced by patients critically affected by COVID-19 and other infectious diseases such as Ebola. Both those diseases contribute to the global burden of sepsis. The situation is further complicated by the increasing threat of antimicrobial resistance, 
multidrug resistant or organisms are often responsible for sepsis in critically ill patients. Far too many people still die of sepsis as a consequence of diarrheal diseases and lower respiratory infections. And an increasing number of sepsis deaths are the result of complications after injuries and non-communicable diseases. Only half of sepsis survivors will fully recover. Of those who don't, one out of three will die within a year and one in six will live with disabilities. Far too many people are dying from a condition that's both largely preventable and treatable. The problem of sepsis underscores the need for achieving quality care for all. That means universal health coverage, including access to prompt, high-quality treatment and safe and affordable medicines and vaccines. Just as critical are improved sanitation, water quality and availability, and infection prevention and control measures such as hand hygiene. This prevents sepsis and saves lives. Coupled with early diagnosis and appropriate clinical management, these interventions could prevent as much as 84% of neonatal deaths due to sepsis. However, we face many challenges in tackling this global problem, not only in controlling it, but even in fully understanding it. Today, WHO is launching the first global report on the epidemiology and burden of sepsis. This first-of-its-kind report offers the most comprehensive evidence on the epidemiology of sepsis. The report includes original research and identifies gaps and priorities for the future, developed by a technical group of international experts led by WHO. One crucial and consistent finding is that low- and middle-income countries bear the highest burden of sepsis. These are also the countries for which we have very little and poor quality data. Most studies published in the scientific literature use different definitions of sepsis, diagnostic criteria and hospital discharge coding, making it highly challenging to develop a clear understanding of the true global burden of disease. WHO convened a group of, of international experts to identify gaps and priorities for sepsis research at the global and country level, including urgent key actions, particularly in low resource settings. Within the next five years, the global health community needs to scale up funding for generating evidence for all aspects of the burden of sepsis. We need more reliable data on its frequency, its economic impact, the risk factors, and the conditions that increase the chance of developing sepsis. In the meantime, WHO has continued to lead a long list of activities aiming at improving the prevention diagnosis, and clinical management of sepsis. Together with international partners, WHO developed and tested a wide range of training 
implementation, and clinical process tools to help clinicians and other health workers in prevention, early recognition, and timely management of sepsis. These resources aim to improve preventive measures and, in particular, hand hygiene or target infections associated with surgical interventions, antimicrobial resistance, and fragile populations. We have recently released guidelines on serious bacterial infections in neonates and maternal sepsis. Other tools we have produced will help to raise awareness on sepsis through global campaigns or enable standardized surveillance of this complex condition by implementing the 11th revision of the international classification of diseases. By the end of 2021, WHO aims to further help clinicians manage sepsis by developing the global guidelines on the clinical management of adult sepsis. Let me leave you with some key actions that we need to take going forward. First, we need to scale up funding for good quality sepsis epidemiology research, in particular in low- and middle-income countries. Second, we need to improve surveillance systems for sepsis, starting at the primary care level and applying standardized and feasible definitions and implementing the full potential of the new ICD-11. Third, we need to develop rapid, affordable, and appropriate diagnostic tools, particularly for primary and secondary levels of care, to improve sepsis identification, surveillance, prevention, and treatment. And fourth, we need to engage and better educate health workers and communities not to underestimate the risk of infections evolving to sepsis and to seek care promptly to avoid clinical complications and the spread of epidemics. Thank you all for your commitment to this urgent public health problem. WHO is committed to working with you to reduce the burden of sepsis and save lives. I wish you a productive conference. I thank you. That is a, a perfect introduction to this conference highlighting actions that have been taken, but also many areas where we are missing information, particularly from, from low and middle income countries. Um, obviously, Dr. Tedros is not with us live, so we don't have the opportunity for questions and discussions with him, but uh, the live speakers if there is a time, we can ask questions or we have time for discussion at the end of the session. Um, if you have a question, please type it into the audience chat. Uh, I will be tracking that chat and we'll try to pull out uh, questions uh, that either more than one person asks or, or are important. So uh, our next speaker is, is once again, uh, Professor Hanan Balki who, in addition to being Assistant Director General of the WHO for the Antimicrobial Resistance Division, has two decades of experience, at least, as a Professor of Pediatric Infectious Diseases, uh, both as a clinician and a researcher, and so is, is perfectly placed and qualified to talk to us about entering a new era 
for tackling antimicrobial resistance. Um, over to you, Hannan. Thank you, everybody, again, for joining us today on this uh, major and important event. Again, the title of my presentation will be Entering uh, a New Era of Tackling Antimicrobial Resistance. I will try to cover some of the antimicrobial resistance milestones over the past few years, um, including the National Action Plan, surveillance, stewardship issues specifically related in the COVID era, and um, hopefully end up by the research agenda. So I might take you on a roller coaster, but hopefully you will enjoy it. As an introduction, Dr. Tedros probably alluded to the fact of a new definition of sepsis. And over the past several years, that definition has been updated, the most recent one from 2016. Sepsis is a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection, where organ dysfunction is identified as an acute increase in the total SOFA score of two or more due to infection. Sepsis um, can affect any individual worldwide. However, a big impact is on the low mid-income countries and the mortality rate can vary between 27 and 42%. And as Dr. Tedros has already mentioned that sepsis survivors um, actually, one in three of them would die within a year and one in six will experience significant uh, morbidity. Now, um, I took office of the Assistant Director General for Antimicrobial Resistance as a flagship and as a cross-cutting program at the WHO after the um, request by the member states to in, for the WHO to lead and enhance the visibility of AMR. And as you can see, the efforts to bring AMR to the spotlight has started way back. Um, I went only back to 2011 where there was an AMR World Health Day, but a lot of activity has specifically place over the past two to three years. I was also a member of the ICG committee established um, or announced in 2016, established in 2017, which um, refers to the interagency consulting group that came out with 14 recommendations. And those recommendations were submitted to the secretary general early 2019. The tripartite, as you all know, even though this is a human health Congress, however, AMR is a uh, a topic that really goes cross borders from human, animal, environment, water, um, agriculture, and plants. And those that lead to the, to the increase in antimicrobial resistance exist in all of these areas. And hence the tripartite has been working for years together. And this alliance has been significantly enhanced over the past few years with an AMR uh, MOU that has been signed. And within the new AMR division, the establishment of the tripartite joint secretariat that works collaboratively with OIE, FAO, and several other UN agencies. Um, then we would like to focus on the National Action Plan, which stemmed from the Global Action Plan initiated in 2015. And as you can see that not only have the five pillars, which I won't go uh, in detail over them today, but the National Action Plan identifies five major areas for each member state and country to identify. The WHO as a convening and guidance um, and technical assistant uh, global health body has established several documents between 
2016 and 2019 to support the countries and member states to establish their national action plan, cost them and fund them to move forward with the interventions needed at a multi-sectorial level. This is a graph that I like to show because we become very enthusiastic that since 2017, we had initially 93 countries establish a national action plan. It went up to 117 last uh, year or 2018-19. We see a staggering um, of the numbers of new countries entering last year, possibly because of COVID. However, the thing that worries us is that you, you, the number of countries that have a national action plan are much higher than, the, than those that actually have a funded or a costed national action plan, which means that these national action plans are not uh, in action, full action yet. And that is one of our major focuses in the next few years with our member states. Now, in order for us to bring attention, numbers really speak uh, louder than any other, numbers and photos, if you will. But for us to continue to bring the spotlight to antimicrobial resistance, the attention of the politicians, clinicians, um, public health, um, the, the whole world, we actually need numbers. And um, we're proud to show the uh, platform of the GLASS, the Global uh, Surveillance System. And you can see in the light blue are the areas where GLASS has already been established in 2000. 17 has um, solicited the countries to come into the glass platform. Uh, we also established the antimicrobial consumption platform. And the third one up here um, in the second column is trying to establish a platform where we can early detect these emerging significantly resistant pathogens in, or in order to implement interventions. In a way, this is going to be much more challenging than trying to have surveillance for emerging hemorrhagic fevers, for example, or uh, the other coronaviruses. But for multidrug resist resistant pathogens, we've actually seen a significant um, increase in resistance and for these pathogens to spread and become endemic in the healthcare setting. There's several other pilot um, projects that are happening um, at WHO, which is the One Health point prevalence for antimicrobial use, and also the assessment of uh, morbidity, uh, sorry, mortality from AMR. This is um, a snapshot from the GLASS report. You can take a look at it. It's online and you can see that low mid-income country resistance is much higher. We were able to establish another milestone last year by including specifically blood infections from third generation cephalosporins or ESBLs and MRSA to be one of the um, sustainable development gold indicators with an aim of a reduction of 10% by member states. And this for us is considered a major achievement um, looking into um, making the member states countries uh, accountable for mitigating the continued emergence of antimicrobial resistance. Um, this is another snapshot from the same report. I won't go into the details, but you can see the variation in resistance in the different countries. So on the very bottom, these are the number of countries that have reported um, um, urinary tract infection caused by um, uh, third generation cephalosporin resistance or carbapenems, as you can see in each of the columns. And the variation of resistance uh, is huge between the different countries. 
As we've mentioned before, this is another uh, slide uh, data that was presented at ECMID in 2017 by Professor uh, Allegranzi and her team. And it again shows in blood and urine, low mid-income countries share a large burden of multidrug resistance uh, pathogens. So in order to bring the mitigation process together, not only do we need how big of the problem is, we need to keep an eye on the major element that ignites antimicrobial resistance, which is the ex extensive or inappropriate utilization of antibiotics. Um, this is a slide going into how has COVID even further ignited the issue of misuse of antimicrobials. I won't go into the details of these three studies, but you can see from the first two that the um, looking into um, COVID patients. The first one was an online search of 1,007 abstracts. The second one was a study from two or uh, two hospitals in the UK identifying uh, COVID patients and looking into the percentages of those who had a positive bacterial infection. And you can see in both, it was at least less than uh, 10%, while the utilization of antimicrobials in these patients was over 70%. Um, so again, there is a major need for us to um, look into the appropriateness of antimicrobial usage in COVID patients. Um, and with that, the fear of this actually uh, trying to um, provide better guidance on utilization of antimicrobials in the clinical management of COVID-19 guidance published by the World Health Organization, we uh, gave guidance on uh, the appropriateness uh, or the encouragement of usage of antimicrobials in suspected confirmed severe cases. We understand that delaying of antimicrobial usage in significantly sick patients in the ICU specifically can lead to um, worse outcome for septic patients. However, we discourage the usage of antimicrobials in patients who are isolated at home, who have mild disease or non-confirmed um, bacterial infections um, along with COVID uh, patients. And I think this is a very important uh, addition to the management of COVID patients uh, being cognizant of antimicrobial resistance. In doing that, that we started this work in stewardship and trying to ensure that not dying from the lack of access to antimicrobials and also not to the misuse of broad spectrum antimicrobials in establishing the Essentials Medicine List Antibiotic Guide or the AWARE pro, uh, program, Access, Watch and Reserve. So I encourage you also to access Access this online. The Access Group is another, in the second SDG indicator for AMR, where we encourage uh, member states to utilize um, up to 60% of their antimicrobials from the Access Group, of course, based on uh, common infections and a, a proper diagnosis, and to limit the usage of antimicrobials listed under the Watch and the Reserve Group. Um, in trying to look into how have countries progressed on this in 2018, also published online, the Antimicrobial Consumption Report, you can see the um, access group, which is the green, has been utilized in most of the countries, yet some countries continue to use the watch list more frequently. And this is a guidance for them to ensure that they establish their stewardship programs. And also for countries who are not providing antimicrobials on the access group 
to make those agents available in order for uh, prescribers to utilize them. Uh, the last section of my presentation, I'll just uh, talk about the, the burden of or the, the dilemma of uh, big pharma exiting the R&D work for antimicrobial uh, development. And um, you can see at least 12 or 14 of them have exited um, the uh, the research group. WHO has established the priority pathogen list, and you can see that the highly critical or the critical priority pathogens are those that we would see uh, mainly in the healthcare setting. Uh, we also list the high priority and the medium priority pathogens, and those are specifically to guide um, through our two other products, the preclinical antimicrobial pipeline and the antimicrobial, the clinical antimicrobial pipeline. And you can see that uh, this is being published uh, since 2019. It will be published on an annual basis. Over 145 individual entities between academia and um, Pharma have developed over 252 antimicrobial products. The scary thing, though, in the clinical pipeline, we only have 32 antigens from the priority list, and only six of those agents used uh, innovative uh, uh, methodologies or innovative uh, products, and only two of those out of the six are aimed towards the critical gram-negative pathogen. So there is still a lot of work needed in this specific area. Finally, I would like to mention again the work of GARG-P, where in 2020, um, with its partners, completed an enrollment in the largest neonatal sepsis observational study. And as you heard from Dr. Tedros, neonates um, are specific uh, victims of the disease sepsis. They are the least to be enrolled in clinical trials and the lack of access to antimicrobials specifically in the mid-low-income countries is of concern. You can see in the slide the countries that have been enrolled, and we hope that we will uh, be seeing uh, published data from this major work um, early in 2021. I think with that, I would like to give my final slide and emphasize that the emergence of antimicrobial resistance um, is, is a reality. And the presence of COVID has really not slowed it down. In fact, it has made it worse. Preserving antimicrobials is of critical to human health and preservation of modern medicine, of course. We do need to have a global collaborative effort to achieve our goals in mitigating antimicrobial resistance. And we need to do this together. Um, and with that, I would like to thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Shannon. Um, I think we have got time for for maybe one quick question. Although we do, we will have hopefully have you back at the end, time permitting, for some. Uh, there were there were a lot of questions coming in, and obviously we don't have time to to address them all. Um, one of the, one of the questions, um, which I, I'll I, I, I'm not sure there's a good answer to, but was about obviously very topical and topical to the three prongs we're discussing um, in this conference around the use of antibiotics in in COVID, uh, which is clearly a, a viral disease. Um, whether there is there any, are you aware of any um, international guidance on that? So if actually. I did mention in um, uh, one of my 
my slides, the clinical management of COVID-19. Uh, maybe I went over it quite quickly, but uh, I'm not sure if that slide can be put up. I have it on my screen. Um, we did. Uh, I did mention that the WHO in May 2020 in the updated clinical management of COVID-19 has actually, um, we have actually inserted in their specific language to guide on what would be the appropriate use of antimicrobials in COVID patients. The problem with COVID, as you can see, with more diagnostics coming out, with the ability to uh, use either the suspected case or confirmed case, those with mild to moderate disease do not need um, antimicrobials. Uh, those who enter into the healthcare setting and specifically into the ICU where the suspicion of a bacterial infection exists based on, of course, that specific country, the hospital setting, uh, the judgment of the epidemiological factors. We do encourage, as would we would with any pre-sepsis patient, to use empiric antimicrobials based on the proper consultation and to emphasize the issue of the need, as with any usage of antimicrobials, is when to de-escalate. So we do provide that language in the WHO um, guidance from, 20, from May 2020. Over to you. Thank you. I think, I mean, that it's a, clearly a very topical issue and I think important to, to reiterate that, um, that as an intensive care clinician myself, it's almost, in, and with the later deterioration, it's very difficult to rule out a secondary bacterial infection. So the approach of empiric antibiotics but with a, a very clear focus on stopping um, is is what you're, what is recommended and I don't think anyone would argue with that. So thank you very much Hannon and hopefully if we have time at the end we can bring you into uh, a general discussion with the other speakers in the session. Um, I think our next speaker is, is with us um, and that is Professor Ada Yonath, who is going to deliver uh, a keynote speaker for us. Uh, Professor Yonath is director of the Kimmelman Center for Biomolecular Bio Structures at the Wiseman Institute in Israel. She is, um, has honorary doctorates from 40 universities, which is, must be fairly unique. Um, she's a member of numerous national academies, including those of the US, Israel, the Leopoldina in Germany, and a Nobel a laureate having won the, the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. And um, beautifully following on from Hannon's presentation, she's going to talk to us about the next generation of environmentally friendly antibiotics. Uh, so hopefully we have Ada, ready to speak to us now. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, antibiotics are really close to my heart. And it's, although I'm in the, in the field for a long time, it's the first time that I'm talking to WHO um, officials. So anyway, I want to talk about the next generation of environmentally friendly antibiotics. And they... Uh, I'm looking only at, or I specialize only at antibiotics that are disturbing protein biosynthesis. I'm sure you all know that biosynthesis starts from reading the gene 
in the DNA, trans transforming it to messenger RNA, which is actually a copy of the DNA, but here the, the language, the basis are exposed, can be read, and it's being read by the ribosome, which makes the proteins. The ribosome are, are doing the decoding and making peptide bonds the same way in every living cell. Uh, although life evolved, also the ribosomes evolved, the actual decoding and peptide bond formation are done by ribosomes that are made of two subunits. You can see here on the left, the small one, and on the right, the large one. They are all made of a large number of RNA bases in four different chains and many proteins. So here in the, in the figure, the RNA is in gray and each protein is in a different color. And they, they, they are each of, each of the subunits is independent, can, can live alone and actually in the cells they are separated. They come together only when they have to make proteins. So uh, because and just uh, you can see how, how they look when they are together. Uh, they are connected uh, through their, their interfaces and through the tRNA, the molecule that brings the amino acid from one side and has the decoding information from the other side. So uh, there is a huge number of them in every cell. Mammalian cells may contain millions like in the liver. Even in bacteria, uh, when bacteria uh, grows, they can reach 100,000 ribosomes in a single cell bacteria. So because the ribosomes are so important, or actually the protein biosynthesis is, is uh, so important, uh, over 40% of the clinically useful antibiotics today that are in, in the uh, clinical use, usage are disturbing this, this uh, um, process, mainly by paralyzing the ribosomes. Uh, and it was found that the natural antibiotics are actually the weapons in the microorganism era. It's one type against the other, we as human beings, are using those that are useful for us. It means those that can differentiate between bacteria and higher organisms like human or animals. And here what I want to show is that the, the two subunits, the large on the left, the small on the right, and the places where the antibiotics used today are binding to the ribosome in order to paralyze it, they all bind either in the active sites, like where the decoding is happening or when, when the bonding is happening or in the tunnel that um, prov provides protection to the newly born protein or in the uh, entrance of the messenger RNA or the entrance of the amino acid on the tRNA. All are in and all within the, the structure, deep into the structure in the interior. Uh, and this is this is correct for all, and I don't have time now to show how they can be 
there can be a differentiate between bacteria in, in higher organisms like human, mammalians, but there are small differences that they differentiate between them and this is what makes antibiotics useful. Now, resistance to antibiotics is one of the most severe problems in modern medicine. I don't think that here I have to explain it. You all know it. And the World Health Organization said back two or three years ago that we are reaching post-antibiotic era. And even the World Bank estimated that almost 4% of the global economy will be lost by, two, by 2050 because of resistance, which is frightening. And here there are some numbers. Two million people yearly fall ill in the United States in infectious diseases. In Europe, between 2010 and 2014, 33,000 died yearly, although there was a 1.6 billion healthcare euro cost. And although the, the consumption was elevated sometimes even to twice as much as in the beginning. So it's a, it seems to be really a problem. Uh, uh, maybe we can soon revert back to the time that infections were killers. So uh, you, I, I think that Hanan talked before me, uh, talked about some, some uh, attempts of companies to make new antibiotics, to create new antibiotics. Uh, as far as I know, she's right. It's even in, in real numbers of successful antibiotics, it's even worse than it sounds. But uh, there is a huge mis the, the justification is a huge mismatch between the social value and the high expense. Social value means our life. And the high expense is what is needed in order to produce, to make a new one and new antibiotics. So the question that we asked ourselves is, is, is combating resistance possible? I think that if we talk about full com combating, it's not. I think it's unlikely because bacteria want to live and because bacteria are cleverer than us, at least in terms of survival. And of course, cleverer, it's not that they know to read and write, but they find ways to exist. Nevertheless, we are doing some, we are conducting some modest contributions toward controlling, hopefully even combating antibiotics resistance. So uh, what is running, what is behind us, what is our concept? A wide use, a wide spectrum antibiotics, which are used today, are increasing the, the resistance, even in, in a, a bacteria that are not needed for any specific treatment. Therefore, we think that narrow spectrum, we narrow the risk of resistance and we're looking for pathogen-specific essential structural motifs that will make pathogen-specific antibiotics. It means this is, in our opinion, a very important point.
for this reason, we determine the structures of ribosomes from pathogenic bacteria. Earlier, we determined the, the structures of ribosomes from harmless bacteria. This was the, the first uh, phase of this, of this work. And then we compared the, the normal or the harmless to the, to the pathogenic. And we learned many lessons, and I will not talk about all of them. I'll just mention that the general lesson is, is that all bacterial ribosomes are similar, actually very similar. Lesson one, two, and three, I'll, I'll uh, skip. Lesson four, which is the most exciting one, is beyond my expectations. It's, a, it's leading to identification of novel antibiotic binding sites, which are very different than the normal ones. So what you see here on the left, on the left side, you see the skeleton of harmless bacteria in gray and pieces that are specific to the bacteria that we looked at at that time, Staphylococcus aureus, Staph aureus. You can see in, in, in Cyan some additional pieces which are on the surface and they have structure. I, I en enlarged one on the right-hand side at the corner. And we think that this piece that is specific to Staphylococcus is a potential binding site. If we can block it, it may be a potential binding site. So actually, we already uh, identified uh, several of them. We all, I, here I show that we not only identified, I'll talk about the number in a minute, but I want to show that we even could target them in the anti-sense anti uh, technology, which are making double helices on the surface. I show here uh, five, uh, five examples, but actually we are already identified 25 new potential unique sites and we blocked them one by one. And 16, when we blocked, inhibit protein biosynthesis. It means we have 16 positions for a possibility to make new antibiotics for just one type. And uh, if, I, if I can say a word about the way we, we look at it, if we look at one at a time, if we, uh, if not we, if the clinics are using one at a time and it takes about 10 to 15 years for resistance, because we think resistance will be even then, uh, it can be almost 100 years that we can have new antibiotics without resistance. So, bacteria did not assign vital roles. It means they are not active sites as of now. So, for, for this reason, we can exploit them now. They do have vital roles, but not in the ribosome itself, but because the ribosome and the cell with uh, all types of factors of the cell that have to um, a, a initiate or terminate ribosome function or, bit, or in, the in the surfaces between the large and the small subunit in the active ribosome. Therefore, they are important. More than this, they are, they are uh, giving us a tool that can be exploited 
for design of advanced antibiotics, but also we can pay attention to degradability, degradable antibiotics, and environmental friendly. And I want to say a few words about this, uh, which is the fifth lesson, selectivity and similarities. I'll talk only about selectivity between the pathogens and the harmless, the microbiome, that uh, I'm sure you all know about it. Or almost all microbiome are eubacteria. Therefore, the uh, antibiotics that are used today, if they reach their place, they may, uh, they may cause other diseases. So they are, they are mainly uh, residing in flora of semi-exposed mammalian organs like guts and ears and lung and skin. But they, uh, they are, if, if they are reachable, they can be, they can be uh, harmed by antibiotics, by the current antibiotics, and cause other diseases. This, the sixth lesson is ecological, environmental and ecological co uh, considerations. And here I want to, to say a few words about the structure of the non-antibiotics today. All of them, or let's say almost all of them, are extensions of small organic cores, small organic molecules. You can see here several examples of them. It doesn't matter what the names are. But these small organic cores, which were bacterial made, and the companies that improved the bacterial antibiotics did not touch them. They used them as are, as are. They are not degradable. They are not digestible. It's not so important. They are not degradable. So therefore, they may, they may penetrate into uh, irrigation systems because they are so small that most of the purification needs um, um, uh, don't cannot find them cannot they uh, prevent them running with the irrigation systems and come back to us via the grass or via via the flowers that they, via the fruit that grow there and so on. So the newly identified potential sites that they what they what they uh, we are using can be blocked the way that we block them by molecules that we design. They can be oligonucleic acid, oligopeptides, combination of them or something else. We can design them so, they, so that they can be optimized in terms of chemical properties, antibiotic action and degradability, which uh, uh, at least give us very nice tools for uh, future antibiotics. So uh, the, the, all, the, all the lessons that we learned, I didn't talk about all of them, but I want still to mention them. They gave us tools for improving existing antibiotics. I didn't talk about it at all, but I did talk about future antibiotics. And I did talk about better distinction between pathogen and useful antibiotics that are within our bodies. So uh, in, in our, uh, in our uh, uh, mind, pathogen-specific antibiotics mean design of antibiotics drugs specific for each and every pathogen in contrast to the uh, 
antibiotics used today that are mainly are for wider, wider range. And as I said earlier, pharma companies don't like to make antibiotics at all, and surely they, they have a, a economical profit problems with pathogen-specific antibiotics. But being optimistic, we expect that pharma companies will consider human aspects, not only profit. Human aspects mean our life. So this is also a call to the pharma companies to look into different type of antibiotics. Before I finish, I want to tell you that this, all this work on ribosomes and afterwards also on the antibiotics started where you are now in Berlin at the Max Planck for Molecular Genetics in Dahlem, um, and later on also in Hamburg at the Synchrotron there at the Accelerator Facilities. Dr. Wittmann was the person that uh, we collaborated with for almost 10 years, but he died. He only, only wanted to see the structure of ribosomes, but he died before, 10 years before we got it and was replaced by Franceschi and then by Fuccini. So uh, it's time that I'll show you the group that is now with me at the Weizmann Institute. And I'm sorry that it, it jumped. So I want to go back. I want to show you Tamar. Tamar came for 10 years, 16 years ago. Sorry, for 10 weeks, 16 years ago. And she had a birthday when I made a picture when I took the photo and she baked a cake for her own birthday. And the cake is shown here. And it shows that in my group, ribosomes are considered sweet. Thank you. Ah, sorry, sorry. Uh, one of our best, most uh, successful and most liked uh, artist, Drumi. And you can see all my hair are like ribosomes, small subunits on the left and on the right, on the top, large subunits. And if you see these yellow pieces here and on, also on the ears, this is where he thinks new antibiotics should be made. So in this time, I can also thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Ada. That was a, a, a fascinating presentation, which introduced certainly introduced me to some uh, new ideas. Um, we're, um, I think, if um, it would be good to uh, bring those questions in, bring some questions in at the end. I hope you are able to join us then, uh, because you've introduced a lot of um, fascinating concepts there which cross um, a number of the issues that the uh, other speakers are going to deal with um, which is an inter uh, interactions between uh, economics um, need um, uh, regulation versus profit etc and i'm sure those are issues that we can address at, um, at the end um, but uh, for me, that was a fascinating presentation. There were some questions in the chat about 
um, access to slides and um, sharing this with others. Um, all these presentations will be uh, put online. Um, I can't tell you the time frame for that. Maybe I will be told that and I can tell you later, but they will all go online afterwards. So people who are obviously, we want this to be available globally. In some parts of the world, it's the middle of the night. So um, uh, this session, Marvin is telling me, will go out on the 15th of September. So that would be Tuesday of next week. Um, so you can listen to it again if you've listened live because there was an, there's been a phenomenal amount of information already um, and also share with your friends and colleagues who are unable to make this. Um, so our next presentation is a recorded presentation by Seth Berkeley, who is the CEO of the Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and is co-leading efforts um, through the uh, vaccine's pillar of the access to COVID tools accelerator to develop and distribute a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine globally. And that continues work that he has um, done over many years to uh, make vaccines against common diseases that cause sepsis accessible um, across the world, in, including to many underprivileged populations. Delegates to the World Sepsis Congress, thank you for inviting me to this important event to discuss how vaccination saves lives through the prevention of sepsis. The link between vaccination and sepsis is not talked about enough. Sepsis is an important global health threat and vaccination being one of the most powerful, far-reaching and cost-effective health interventions in the world has a critical role to play in tackling it. According to the Global Disease uh, Burden of Disease Report in 2017, almost half of all global sepsis cases occurred among children, with 20 million cases and 2.9 million global deaths in children under the age of five. Many vaccine-preventable diseases are major contributors to sepsis, and most deaths from sepsis can be prevented by impactful, cost-effective preventive measures, including immunization. Diseases like pneumonia and meningitis often result in fatal complications like sepsis, especially in neonates. The power of immunization comes from the fact that it can decrease the rates of infection in the first place. With fewer infections, we also see a reduction in the rate of fatal complications. And indeed, vaccines like those for haemophilus influenza type B, pertussis, pneumococcal, and meningococcal infections have all been instrumental in reducing childhood infections that can lead to sepsis both directly and through herd immunity. Recently, we have introduced our first use of routine conjugated typhoid vaccine in Pakistan during a serious outbreak of extreme drug resistance typhoid, thus trying to break an epidemic of an ancient and serious form of sepsis. There is also huge scope to do more with other vaccines that are on the horizon. For example, a vaccine for group B streptococcus is currently in development. If effective, this has the potential to save 150,000 newborn lives every year and prevent up to 260,000 cases of maternal and newborn sepsis. This emphasizes the importance and need to incentivize the development of new infectious disease vaccines. But it's not just about which vaccines are available. 
people also need to receive them. Universal access to vaccines, therefore, has a central role to play in the fight against sepsis. Another is the role that vaccine has to play in reducing the spread of antimicrobial resistance. By preventing these diseases, vaccination can have the additional benefit of helping to reduce antibiotic resistance. Because with future infections comes a reduced need for antibiotics and also a reduced opportunity for resistance to spread. And as we have seen, without the selective pressure of constant antibiotics in the community, we even see resistant organisms revert to wild-type antibiotic-sensitive strains. The knock-on effect is that this will help conserve the antibiotics we still have that are still effective in treating sepsis. For example, a study published in 2016 estimated that universal coverage with the pneumococcal vaccine could prevent 11.4 million days of antibiotic use per year in children under five, and that's just one vaccine. By helping to vaccinate more than half of the world's children against some of the world's deadliest disease, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, is playing a critical part in the role against sepsis. Gavi is a public-private partnership which started in 2000. We've immunized an entire generation since then, more than 820 million additional children and prevented more than 14 million deaths. Through routine programs, preventive campaigns, and emergency stockpiles, we support vaccines against 17 infectious diseases. During this time, Gavi has transformed the immunization landscape giving countless millions of the world's poorest children access to vaccination. The Gavi Fund and Haemophilus Influenza Type B initiative, for example, paved the way for low-income countries to, reduce, to introduce HIV vaccines. This contributed to a massive reduction of the disease and the elimination of Haemophilus Influation Haemophilus influenza type B meningitis in many sub-Saharan African countries. Today, we continue to support meningococcal vaccines and Hib and pertussis in the form of the pentavalent vaccine, that's five in one, which has now been introduced in every country supported by Gavi. Similarly, in the last 10 years since it first became available, almost all Gavi countries have introduced the pneumococcal vaccine. However, it is not all rosy. Today, in the 68 countries that Gavi supports, there are still 10.6 million children not receiving a single dose of vaccine, so-called zero-dose children, and 15.2 million children not receiving a full course. While these numbers have declined dramatically since 2015, reaching these zero-dose children and setting them on the pathway to full immunization is our highest priority. This year, the task has faced significant challenges because of the global impact of COVID-19. The pandemic has infected more than 25 million people, killing hundreds of thousands of them and disrupting the lives of billions. But the death toll of this pandemic cannot just be measured in COVID-19 deaths. The pandemic has had a devastating impact on a wide range of health interventions, including immunization. According to a recent study, every COVID-19 death prevented by suspending routine immunization services in lower income countries to try to halt the spread of the disease 
risks an additional 84 vaccine preventable disease deaths by allowing children to go unprotected against the other killer vaccine preventable diseases. This highlights the importance of maintaining routine immunization services while identifying strategies to continue to deliver immunization. With widespread disruption of immunization services, there is also heightened risk of backsliding. WHO has projected that at least 80 million children under the age of one are now at risk of missing vaccinations due to COVID-19. Those disadvantaged communities in resource-poor, conflict-affected, and crowded urban settings are particularly at risk for infectious disease threats. So we need to work with countries to balance the imperatives to fight COVID-19 whilst also maintaining and restoring immunization and other essential health services as quickly and equitably as possible. A core part of Gavi's 2021 to 2025 strategy is to focus on extending immunization services to underserved communities and zero-dose children. This includes supporting countries to address gender-related barriers to delivery, increasing community engagement, and ensuring equitable access to quality health services. Resilient health systems protect people in many ways, so it's even more important that we reach these communities equitably with integrated primary health care interventions, such as infection prevention, WASH, and immunization. At Gavi, we will continue to drive efforts to reach everyone towards the vision of leaving no one behind with immunization. It is a vision that will have an immeasurable impact in reducing sepsis. We look forward to working with all of you in this important fight. Thank you for listening. So, um, for those on the chat asking to see the slides, that was, uh, there were no slides with that presentation. Um, hopefully you were listening and taking notes, but as uh, there was some, uh, really some quite scary information in that. Um, notably, um, I think um, the idea that preventing one COVID death by avoiding vaccination leads to 84 um, vaccine um, absence of vaccination related deaths is really quite scary. Um, uh, that's certainly something I wasn't aware of. And maybe that's something we can come back uh, to later in the, the converse, conversation and discussion we have at the end, because clearly um, the interaction between what's happening in this pandemic and people avoiding healthcare and avoiding screening and avoiding these preventative treatments are going to have um, remarkable, potentially remarkable downstream effects. Um, so I will move on to our next speaker, um, who is Sir Liam Donaldson. Uh, Sir Liam is a WHO envoy for patient safety. He has a long um, and um, very distinguished history in public health. He was the Chief Medical Officer for England from 1988 to 2010. He's an honorary distinguished professor at Cardiff University and Professor of Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and he has been a great supporter of the Global Sepsis Alliance and efforts to reduce uh, 
uh, preventable deaths and disability due to sepsis for many years. So, uh, and uh, so Liam is going to talk to us about the patient safety aspects. So thank you for joining us, Liam. Thank you, Simon, and, and uh, good morning, everybody. Um, the WHO's uh, global leadership on patient safety started in the early 2000s. And as Simon said at the time, I was chief medical officer for England, but I was also the UK's representative um, to the World Health Organization. And I persuaded the UK government to put a major investment into patient safety. And we moved that forward with a body that we established called the World Alliance for Patient Safety, which was a, a partnership with WHO. And um, one of the most visible aspects of, of that, which will be well known to people attending this conference, was that we set up a series of programs, including uh, the formulation of a global patient safety challenge. And that first challenge was about healthcare-associated infection. It was called Clean Care is Safer Care. And it was um, based primarily on promoting the concept of hand hygiene, which was relatively um, unknown on the scale that uh, it eventually ended up, and particularly the use of alcohol gels. And it was very ably led by Professor Didier Piter from Geneva Hospitals and also uh, Benedetta Allegranzi, who you uh, well know is one of the co-organizers of this conference. Why was the focus on patient safety at that time? Well, essentially the problem was that um, not many people realized that um, there was a substantial burden of avoidable harm. It hadn't been quantified. It, it was largely unknown beyond enthusiasts and academics, certainly not amongst health ministers and mainstream um, leaders of healthcare systems and a lot of uh, physicians and nurses as well. It was an unknown quantity. And the calculation showed that the burden of avoidable harm in healthcare around the world runs at something like 64 million uh, disability adjusted life years per annum. One in 10 people admitted to hospital in high income countries and one in four in low and middle income countries experienced some form of adverse event. So there was a very strong driver to focus on patient safety from the burden of disease data, which at the time hadn't been assembled, but we did assemble it. And secondly, the other very striking thing was that other high risk industries, particularly industries like the airline uh, sector, had achieved remarkable success over several decades by concentrating on the risks of their service and reducing the, um, uh, the risks of harm to um, people using them. And in airline industry in particular, had moved from something like one in three, uh, a risk of dying in an air crash or something like one in three million in the uh, 1960s through to one in... 10 or 11 million in the um, early 2000s. And healthcare had not achieved anything like that um, improvement. In fact, very little improvement at all. So we ran that program and then eventually it merged into the mainstream WHO uh, management team. And most recently, 
the World Health Assembly last year, May 2019, the 72nd World Health Assembly, passed a resolution um, placing patient safety as a global priority. Uh, we produced, resulting from that, a global patient safety action plan. It's currently out to public consultation. And as part of the resolution, it was agreed to establish each year a World Patient Safety Day. The first one was 2019, 17th of September. 17th of September this year, 2020, uh, is also going to be World Patient Safety Day. And the theme, very relevant to the substance of this uh, conference, is going to be on health worker safety. Highlighted, of course, by all the um, focus on healthcare workers' safety in the COVID-19 pandemic, but of course, raising the opportunity to look much more widely at some of the long-standing reasons why we need to think not just about the safety of patients, but also the safety of healthcare workers. So working together with the Global Sepsis Alliance and all the teams working on healthcare-associated infection and antimicrobial resistance. Um, we've been doing that for a long time and um, very successfully, Benedetta Allegranzi and her team have been part of the patient safety uh, department and movement. And we've also worked very closely with Conrad in helping to get uh, sepsis up the agenda because after all, it is also a source of avoidable harm which is a mainstream measure of unsafe care. So in the brief time I've got with you this morning, with that contextual um, background, I just wanted to highlight five of the key concepts in patient safety that are particularly irrelevant, I think, to what you're trying to do in, in your work. Um, the first is that it's very, very important when considering adverse outcomes of any kind or avoidable harm, to understand and map the causation on a regular basis, to have a very high situational awareness for the reasons that things are going wrong or the reasons that performance isn't improving. Now, the lessons, not just for patients from patient safety in healthcare, but from other industries as well, is there's very seldom one contributory factor in an accident or in an adverse event or a source of harm. There are usually multiple factors. And that's why I say it's important to have that scope and depth of understanding and to map that causation. Because no good just working on one aspect. You've got to have a comprehensive approach. And to do that, you've got to understand it. And some of these causal factors are, as you know, very, very deep-seated. For example, if we look at antimicrobial res resistance, we've got the whole of the agricultural sector, which is a true uh, root cause of some of the problems of antimicrobial resistance. But those bigger problems sometimes get ignored. People prefer to stick to their own aspect of, um, of, of improving antimicrobial resistance, but you do need to have constant attention, not just to the immediate factors that need to be corrected, um, the prescribing practices and so on, but also to make sure there's advocacy and action and calls for action on the deeper seated factors. 
The second thing to say about understanding causation is that you have to you have to be aware that sometimes it operates at a very granular level, very context specific to a particular health service or health facility. Um, imagine a situation, for example, where a hospital had been doing well on sepsis, we were at a very good record compared to its peers, and then suddenly it started to slide off and slump into poor performance. And everybody would might wonder why. Why is this happening? We don't understand it. And imagine that the factor that was really responsible was that the chief nurse in the emergency department who dealt with all the triage and uh, made sure the protocols were followed had gone off on maternity leave. And she'd been replaced by an agency nurse. And nobody quite realized that the reason for the fall off in performance was due to the loss of that clear, clear that um, uh, leadership skill that was contributing. So that would be a factor contributing at a very local level. It wouldn't have global or national implications, but it would be essential for that hospital to put right its slump in performance on um, on sepsis. So it shows the understanding, the mapping of causation and the attention to the big picture as well as the detail is vitally important. Point number two, in order to achieve high levels of success in avoiding uh, harm, you have to build resilience. You don't just look at the things that are going wrong, but you strengthen the whole system to try and prevent things from going wrong. And that idea of resilience and the other term that's commonly used of high reliability organizations is also a very important feature of the modern approach to patient safety. You block out the harm. You block out the avoidable harm as much as possible by building in the procedures, the culture, the leadership in order to, to do that. And... Um, one nice example of that, uh, an excellent text that's widely referred to in the patient safety world, uh, written by um, two US academics, Kathleen Sutcliffe and Carl Wyke, a book called Managing the Unexpected, looked at the criteria which are adopted by high resilience organizations in every sector. And they found a number of common features, but one very nice one, which I always like to think about, is one criteria was that a high is that a high reliability organization makes a strong response to a weak signal of failure. Now, just think of an example in healthcare. You might find a situation, say, where somebody reported that um, the observation, the nursing observations of acutely ill patients believed to have sepsis were being um, overlooked or missed out because of pressure of work. Now, that we know that's an important thing, but it might not be up on the high uh, in red lights as a danger signal. If you like, it's a, it's a weak signal of failure. But an organization was really on top of its game in resilience would be reacting very, very strongly to such weak signals, not just waiting to see the big adverse events or the, the, the downturn in performance data. 
The third area, which I think is particularly relevant, is always making the distinction between an intervention and the implementation of that intervention. Think about Peter Pronovost's work on the bundles of interventions used to reduce catheter-associated infection in intensive care units. Um, very successful in Michigan State where it started, but when it was then tried to implement it elsewhere, it wasn't always successful. And the reason that wasn't to do with the intervention being wrong, it was very evidence-based bundle of measures, very um, clear. But the problem was that the organizations implementing it were not good ground to sow those seeds. They weren't fertile organizations. The culture was wrong. The leadership was wrong. So in order to embed a successful intervention, you also need to do prepare the organization, do that development, leadership, get everybody on side, get the enthusiasm, get the, the, uh, the input and the buy-in from everybody. So that's another key message. And the intervention and the implementation are two closely related but separate issues which both need to be addressed. The fourth issue is the importance of reporting incidents and investigating them. Um, you have a strong tradition in this field of surveillance, but surveillance is reporting the outcomes, uh, the diseases that are happening that, that shouldn't be happening and tracking them. But reporting in patient safety terms is asking staff to draw attention to their concerns and what they're seeing. Fifthly, Patients and families play a vital role in patient safety uh, as educators and as observers. Many of the victims of harm and families I've spoken to have been people that have watched their loved one deteriorating but felt helpless as to how they could communicate their concern, didn't feel that they had the status to raise a concern, and yet often they were right and the people looking after their loved one were wrong, and many of those sadly resulted in, in death. So five points there from patient safety. So in conclusion, my advice uh, to those of you who haven't perhaps um, been too involved in the patient, perspective, patient safety perspective in the past is it has great relevance to what you're doing, the subject of, of this conference, but think systems, Think organizations and think about how those organizations and systems are designed, their culture and their leadership. And that's the way, that wider perspective. Yes, of course, we need to concentrate on individual behavior, uh, education, training, getting people to adopt uh, guidelines. But most harm results from good people working in weak systems. So we need to equip the people to do what we need them to do, but we also need to redesign, if necessary, these organizations, get the right cultures in place, and then we'll have that lovely blend of human factors and organizational factors, which are really the recipe for success. Thank you. Thank you very much, Salim. I wonder if I could just ask you one question. Um, we have um, obviously a, a global audience and I think because of 
time zones right now, we have an audience that spreads from Europe, mostly the Americas, I think, still nighttime, um, still waking up. Europe, across Africa, um, the Middle East, Asia, over to me here in Sydney, where it's approaching eight o'clock at night. And a, a lot of the people who are on the chat are clearly from uh, low middle income countries and in health health systems. Do you, how would someone, or does the WHO have um, an approach to really sort of taking the first steps down this pathway as opposed to being in a highly developed healthcare system in a high income country? Yes, we've, we have all along reminded ourselves that the program is for the whole world, but it is true that a lot of the data and a lot of the experience and a lot of the um, uh, solutions that have been developed are in, in hospitals, even not in, high, in primary care, in high income countries. So you're absolutely right. But so we've put a lot of attention to the adaptation of solutions that um, have been developed in high income countries and not assume that you can just push them out into uh, into a mission hospital in Africa and expect them to succeed. So a lot of listening to those in in low income countries. But the inspiring thing is, although the constraints on delivering safe care are very heavy in those countries, lack of um, infrastructure, lack of running water and things of that sort, then um, even with the constraints, people see the overall principles and do their best, make their organization as resilient as they can within the constraints which they're operating. So we've been very inspired to see that. And just one additional point, sometimes the solutions in low-income countries are not necessarily about bringing somebody in to teach um, surgical skills and things of that sort. They're about teaching people to um, repair an incubator or put in place a safe waste disposal system. So you need to think, you need to, as I said at the, the beginning of my five points, you need to understand and map the causation of avoidable harm, which will be entirely different in, in those sorts of settings. Thank you. I, I guess that's also a nice segue into our next presentation, um, where um, which is by Alessandro Cassini, who's a, a public health, um, medically qualified public health and epidemiology doctor who joined the WHO in 2019 and has led the WHO report on sepsis epidemiology, which I, I'm, I don't want to steal all the thunder, but I think um, is again an area where um, we have a lot of data. Well, we have some data from high-income countries, far more than we have from low-middle-income countries. And Alessandro is going to um, present uh, to us the, globe, the WHO Global Sepsis Epidemiology Report um, in a presentation towards a global sepsis research agenda. Alessandro, over to you. Thank you very much, Simon. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everyone. And thanks uh, again, Simon, for reminding us that we are heard across all time zones across the world. And uh, it's a real pleasure 
and uh, I'm very honored uh, to present on uh, during in this platform uh, uh, during this Congress that we organized uh, together with the Global Sepsis Alliance, and to present together with um, these uh, presenters today that uh, that have uh, set the stage for our discussion on sepsis. So my aim today is going to is to present a little bit of um, data um, that is available and evidence that is available on the burden and the impact of sepsis. But not only that, um, I will show a little bit more also on the methodologies uh, that are used to estimate the evidence and the burden of sepsis. And what are these limit the limitations that are related to those methodologies? And together with a large group of experts uh, already in uh, 2019, we started working on focusing on what would be the priorities you know, after viewing the gaps in uh, sepsis epidemiology research, what are the priorities for the future? So again, thank you very much to the Global Sepsis Alliance, to Marvin and Conrad to, for making this happen. Um, and to all the colleagues at WHO that have helped uh, both uh, on the administrative side uh, and on the scientific side to make this Congress as rich as it already is. And I'm sure the rest of the day will be extremely uh, interesting as well. So um, just gonna there try to get the slides going. Uh, just to frame a little bit the uh, this report, I want to remind that uh, in 2017 there was a sepsis a World Health Assembly resolution titled the, to improve the prevention, the diagnosis, and the clinical management of sepsis. And uh, there were four asks to the WHO during uh, that uh, assembly, which actually was the assembly where our current Director General, Dr. Tedros, was elected, and you can see him there in the picture together with former directors, uh, Brundtland and Margaret Chan. So there were four asks to the WHO, which were to work on guidance for sepsis prevention and management, to support member states, implement these guidances and implement other kinds of interventions to reduce the burden of sepsis, to collaborate with other organizations, uh, which is a little bit what we're doing today with the uh, Global Sepsis Alliance, and um, to estimate the global burden of, the, of uh, sepsis. So um, this report is, let's say, framed within this ask from the uh, World Health Assembly, but the WHO has been working on sepsis through several activities, mainly clinical activities um, in maternal and child and neonatal health, um, particularly since many, many years. Um, and just to link it also to the um, SDGs, just to remind that sepsis contributes, I mean, reducing and preventing deaths uh, and disabilities from sepsis, sepsis contributes to many uh, SDGs within especially the uh, number three. Um, so just go forward uh, for the sake of time because there's a lot of data that I'm going to try to present today. The report is uh, is a long one and it really tries to um, let's say underline all the available evidence that we have until now. And it is ob pretty obvious that the estimates that are presented in, in this report 
um, depend on the quality of the individual studies and the data sources. So just to frame the kind of evidence that we, let's say, focused on and that we extracted for this report, I want to say that um, this report refers to at least, for example, eight original and some are updated reviews of the uh, systematic reviews of the literature. They were uh, often general or sometimes targeting specific patient populations, specific settings or geographical areas. They all of them attempted meta-analysis, but they consistently found um, a high between study heterogeneity. So that means that there is a heterogeneity, a heterogeneous approach uh, to uh, doing uh, sepsis research. So uh, other kind of studies are modeling studies uh, that attempt to estimate global estimates, for example, based on available data sources. The most notable example is the Global Burden of Sepsis study that uh, was published this year and that Professor Rudd will present later after uh, my talk. And I apologize with Professor Rudd already because I will present some of her of the data that she published in um, in uh, um, her recent publication. Um, another example of modeling is uh, what is done by the United Nations Interagency Group for Child Mortality Estimation. Uh, and their major challenge that they faced uh, was to reconcile the differences across the data sources while taking into account the systematic biases associated with the various types of data. So um, it is extremely difficult to build some data based on uh, available data sources. We also have a few prospective multi-center, multi-country trials, for example, the African neonatal sepsis trial, the AFRINEST, the simplified antibiotic therapy trial, also known as SATS. Uh, the, our colleagues uh, that are working on the global maternal sepsis study this year, um, which is also called GLOSS, this year managed to uh, publish some very interesting data that uh, we managed to pu pull in into this report at the last minute. And then also colleagues working on the multi-country survey uh, on abortion and uh, the Global Antibiotic Research and Development Partnership, the GARD-P all presented quite interesting data that we use for this report. So I'll give you a little bit of snapshots of uh, what is presented in, um, in the uh, report. So this report compiles the findings, all the methodologies and the large number of studies, as I was saying earlier. Um, we, let's say that one of the most interesting findings that uh, uh, comes from the paper uh, published on the Lancet by Rudd is that it is estimated that around 50, almost 50 million cases of sepsis occur every year, or at least in 2017, of which 11 million uh, will die. And this represents a huge, a staggering 20% of the global deaths. Um, in 2017, the largest contributors to sepsis, incidence, and mortality among all the age groups were diarrheal diseases and lower respiratory infections. And also, an estimated 40% of sepsis patients are rehospitalized within 90 days uh, from the discharge. This increases the burden of sepsis not only to the individual, but also on the healthcare system and the society. The post, post 
discharge sepsis complications are associated with a worse pre-illness health status, infection severity, and the quality of hospital care. So only around half of sepsis survivors will fully recover. One-sixth will experience significant morbidity, functional limitations, for example, inability to bathe or dress independently, moderate to severe cognitive impairment, increased mental health disorders, and one-third will die within one year. So another interesting finding, um, some of it, most of it from, again, the root paper um, was that the incidence seems to be in terms of um, age groups biphasic. So it peaks in early childhood and again in elderly adults. And I think this was pointed out by previous speakers, uh, by Seth Berkeley, for example, that uh, about 40% of incident cases and um, and one-fourth of the deaths related to sepsis, so almost 3 million, uh, occur in children that are younger than five years old. The GBD sepsis study, the Global Burden of Disease sepsis study, found that more than half of the sepsis cases in 2017 occurred in patients with an underlying infectious cause of health loss, while the remaining cases were infections that occurred secondary to underlying injuries and or chronic diseases. And this is also a very interesting finding that um, was modeled by the GBD group. I also wanted to present a little bit of um, results from a very recently published systematic review of the literature. Uh, this is actually an update um, of a uh, systematic review that was published in 2016, but also uh, an expansion in terms of uh, the search strategies and uh, the countries and the settings that we were looking. So um, there were 51 studies uh, that were considered eligible and mostly, however, as uh, you pointed out earlier, Simon, came from high-income countries, 46 of these 51 studies. And the estimated pooled incidence was 189 hospital-treated adult sepsis cases for 100,000. The mortality in the hospital was one-fourth, so 26.7%. However, the mortality in ICUs was much higher. It was 42% of the ICU-treated sepsis patients. Um, the sepsis incidence and mortality estimates were not significantly different between the WHO reason, regions for the incidence, but on the other hand, there were significant regional differences in the incidence and mortality for the ICU-treated sepsis. So looking at the hospital in general, it doesn't seem to be, a, or at least significant differences from the published studies, but when you uh, go, you, you narrow it down to ICUs, the, the, the differences become pretty large. And the overall and regional specific estimates should be interpreted with caution, especially because of the low representation in low and middle income countries. So um, the inverse, there's an inverse relationship between the income level and the sepsis incidence and mortality. Uh, also considering that 85% of the sepsis cases and almost the same for the deaths occur in low low middle and middle social demographic in indexes countries. So in particular in Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. Um, 
So there's also an association, I just wanted to add this, and this was also presented by Assistant Director General Hanan uh, Balkin, will be further explored by Professor uh, Benetta Legranzi later on, that there is an association between the country income level and the risk of detecting multidrug resistant organisms. Um, and the prevalence of MDROs are significantly higher in low and middle income countries. So this is to reinforce a little bit the the, 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 this map that we're looking at. And then we also look at what is the available evidence. Um, this uh, shows that exactly where we seem to have the highest burden of sepsis is where there's a lack of evidence and there's a lack of uh, published research on epidemiology. Uh, and in particular, the GBD sepsis study, for example, uh, in order to obtain data from those countries had to uh, do quite a few extrapolations from uh, a few countries. So it must have been pretty challenging and I'm sure Professor Rudd will show a little bit more of this later. Um, the severe neonatal infections, which include sepsis, um, represent also a, a significant uh, cause of neonatal mortality between 1.3 and 3.9 million annual neonatal sepsis cases and between 400 and 700,000 annual deaths. But the most important thing is that the higher incidence rates were found in that risk groups in low and middle income countries. Low birth weight, gestational age were uh, associated with increased sepsis incidence. Early on sepsis, uh, was much more common than late uh, onset sepsis. And the survival of preterm and sick infants have improved, however, over time. Um, but this population requires more hospital care, which exposes them to a new set of risks, in particular healthcare-associated or hospital-acquired infections. Uh, to keep on looking at the global estimates of neonatal sepsis, there's, we had to infer um, a little bit of information from other studies, for example, the possible severe bacterial infection, uh, which is a huge, uh, very large project uh, that is um, uh, by, let's say, coordinated by WHO with many other uh, partners. Um, and it's used in the integrated management of childhood illness package, which helps clinicians manage these infections in, in very young infants. Um, from the uh, PSBI, the Possible Severe Bacterial Infection Project, it was clear that 25% of these cases appear as neonatal sepsis. Uh, and 24% of the neonatal deaths are due to severe neonatal infections, which also include sepsis. Um, we also try to give an overview of the maternal sepsis, uh, what is the, um, let's say, the impact of sepsis on maternal health. And um, obstetric infections are the third most cause of, common cause of maternal mortality. And 10.7% of deaths, um, uh, the obstetric infections cause 10% of maternal deaths. They're almost all in low and middle income countries. There uh, seems to also be an impact uh, um, on sepsis due to abortions, unsafe abortions. Uh, for example, the um, multi-country survey on abortion study that will be published later on this year found that a high number of women across Africa, Latin America, Caribbean experience abortion-related complications, including death 
and a potentially life-threatening complication, including systemic infections. Uh, there's also notable work that was done in order to standardize a little bit the research on maternal sepsis by uh, WHO, and in particular, a statement on the definition of uh, the maternal sepsis. It, WHO facilitated this consensus around the standardized definition, which is a life-threatening condition defined as organ dysfunction resulting from infection during pregnancy, childbirth, post-abortion, and postpartum partum period. Uh, the definition was based on systematic reviews of the literature, etc. So um, this has really helped, in particular, uh, the, um, the implementation of the Global Maternal Sepsis uh, Study, which was published this year and that found that 70 women for every thousand live births had a suspected or confirmed maternal infection requiring the hospital management and 11 of them presented with severe maternal outcomes. So the infection was the underlying cause or contributing in over half of intra-hospital maternal deaths. They also um, found large differences across uh, countries according to their income level. And for example, it's very telling the graph uh, that we produce for this report on the bottom right, uh, where there's a clear difference um, in uh, the uh, number of severe maternal outcomes that are, um, that are present in high income countries compared to the rest of the world. And no maternal deaths were reported in high-income countries. This observed, observed variation across countries could be related to the use of different admission criteria, for example, but the resources available to identify severe infections and conditions generally would have um, an impact. So looking at all these methodologies, um, it seems clear that we have a, uh, let's say, three different categories of methodologies that are used. So systematic reviews of the literature, which are, however, uh, based mainly on observational cohort of cross-sectional studies. And they rely on ICD codes for sepsis case de detection. And um, But the number of studies from low and middle income countries is extremely low. Other methodologies are uh, related to modeling, as I was uh, showing earlier. Um, but a good example, uh, uh, apart from the GBD sepsis study, is also this um, the UNIGME um, approach for modeling the, the, the available evidence. There are also quite a few prospective multicenter, multi-country studies that, however, generally have a limited geographical scope. Uh, the data limitations, there's a large number of data limitations, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through all of them, but the, these do create knowledge gaps, which include the lack of data and understanding of the real burden of sepsis in low and middle income countries. And the proportion of sepsis mortality measurable uh, that is measured accurately um, is also a big gap we do not know very well exactly what is the attributable mortality. What is the burden of the long-term outcomes and sequelae and the etiology and the anti-AMR patterns? So there are a few short-term priorities that we identified. 
uh, we need more advocacy and funding. Uh, Dr. Tedros, in his opening remarks, talked about this to generate more evidence. We need to achieve international consensus on a sepsis case definition, especially for neonates, uh, but also something that can be implemented in uh, low middle income countries where diagnostic capacity is limited. Um, we need to link the sepsis surveillance and epidemiology research to classification and coding and clinical data and microbiology. Um, and we need to increase for in that regard, uh, the diagnostic capacity linking with existing initiatives, for example, with GLASS and other research pieces in maternal and child health. We need to assess the role of sepsis in action plans, develop recommendations on the design and reporting of epidemiological studies, and again, promote the linkages with other global priorities. As I was showing earlier, there are many other, um, let's say, priorities in the beginning that I was showing, like universal healthcare coverage, WASH, infection prevention and control and maternal and child health programs that uh, need to link more and more with uh, efforts on sepsis. And uh, the next steps are to map and assess existing surveillance systems and recommend synergies for sepsis surveillance, develop indicators to evaluate sepsis prevention response capacity, build a stakeholder network to reach consensus, on best practices for surveillance and research. And then maybe one idea that came out from this uh, uh, high level expert meeting that we had was maybe um, promote a surveillance event like a prevalence study during World Sepsis Day. So these are just very quickly acknowledge a large number of people that have helped us compile all this data Together, these are colleagues from WHO that contributed very actively to the writing of the report. Um, this is the technical expert consultation group that also contributed a lot to the report uh, together with people both externally and within the WHO and uh, a large external peer review group that made sure that the report was scientifically sound. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Alessandro. Um, clearly, there <clears throat> that is a report that is is being published, and um, I am making the assumption that it will be accessible on the WHO website in its entirety, um, so that people can dive into it because there's an enormous amount of of data there, um, and certainly difficult to take it all in 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 one sitting but very valuable in terms of working with policymakers, et cetera. Now we have a few minutes um, for those, uh, for the uh, wider audience. And the second session is due to start in six and a half minutes, but they are running parallel. Um, so you can stay with this session if you would like to hear a little of a discussion. Um, or you can log into the other session if you if you want to move to that one. Um, I would like to bring the I, we have um, uh, I think um, some of the earlier speakers, uh, Hannan, um, Salim, Ada, etc., still online, um, and I would um, I'd like to throw out a couple of questions and. Um, hopefully people can unmute themselves and 
um, answer if they would like to. Um, what we've heard about is obviously um, a lot about um, this huge challenge of antimicrobial resistance um, and the, the complexity of it. Um, I loved the idea of environmentally friendly antibiotics, which is, which is a new, relatively new concept to me. I'm going to have to go away and think about and learn about. But I'm, I'm wondering, as a clinician, um, whether if we, to tackle AMR, should where we have countries where you can, as people have noted in the, in the chat, um, that you can go to a shop and buy antimicrobials um, without any prescription um, and that some of those countries are seem to have the biggest problems uh, with antimicrobial resistance should the the efforts be at government policy level um, obviously individual clinicians have a role to play but can we as individual clinicians really influence this question if antibiotics are so freely available in other parts of the world. Um, and I think the COVID-19 pandemic is showing us just what an interconnected world we had. Um, I don't know whether um, Hannon or Ada would like to comment on that. You're Hi Simon, I'm happy to take a first stab at this question, if you will, and uh, then maybe we can hand it over to Ada. Can you hear me? Yeah, yes, we can, yes. Yes, yeah, so that's a, that's a great question and a complex one. And I think um, even uh, prior to taking this post, we had the same issue um, um, in Saudi Arabia when I was practicing there. But I think uh, there's the issue of, um, as you said, regulatory, but it's not just the regulatory. It's what is available also um, in each of the countries and whether there's also the, the, the problem of counterfeit medications as well. So it's over the counter, it's quality of medications, it's regulation, and then it's the implementation of these regulations. Um, as you also know, antimicrobials can be bought online. So uh, really making the availability and access to these agents quite um, easy. Um, what we're trying to do is trying to, uh, through the regulatory processes, make sure that antimicrobials are available to those who need them. But it's going to be the burden on the, each of the member states to um, put in those regulatory and auditing processes in place to enable to ensure the uh, proper access to medications. Uh, another issue is, as you mentioned, the whole stewardship issue and um, the, the issue of initiating antimicrobials properly and then de-escalating properly. That requires extreme engagement of the healthcare facility leadership, as you mentioned, and not only the um, infectious diseases or uh, primary healthcare providers, but I think it is really everybody to be engaged. What we try to do at the WHO, and we have uh, wanted to have a much stronger rollout for the antimicrobial stewardship kit, which talks at national and subnational levels, we were hoping to be able to, um, to launch um, to that um, earlier this year, but with the COVID, we were not able to, um, and really work very closely with the member states 
on the issue of uh, stewardship at national and subnational level. So I'll stop here. Thank you. Did you want to comment at all, Ada? Yeah, I, I can comment, but I know very little about restrictions and things like that. Uh, I do know that overuse, when it's not needed or uh, using antibiotics where they are needed, but a wide range increases the resistance. It's a it's easy to, to blame the doctors or the pharmacies or the companies, but actually resistance is, is a, a property that bacteria developed. We are just helping to make it a real big medical problem. And uh, it, in my opinion, higher a control of the amount of the types of antibiotics will help, but what, what will more help is the design of antibiotics that are specific for whatever disease it is or for wide use if it's needed, but usually it's not. And, and then even if the, the, the people use it without, without the need of it or overusing, it will not be so dangerous. And that's the duty that we took out on ourselves. In addition for, to making antibiotics, which are less say, harmful, like uh, ecological friendly, species specific, uh, uh, um, um, less say, or more distinguishing between bacteria, harmful bacteria, and the microbiome. I, I guess as a, a clinician, one of the problems we have is, first of all, I, you know, being certain about infection and secondly, about what is the likely pathogen. And I, I do know there are, there are groups working on sort of artificial intelligence approaches to that to try and more give clinicians a better way of saying, okay, this is the likely pathogen, this is the antibiotic we use. Uh, so, Liam, did you want to... Uh, you have yes, your thank hand you, up. Simon. I just wanted to briefly return to your original uh, point that this is an important source of risk in low and middle income countries. You, you, the the free access to antibiotics, not come, not finishing the courses, all of the things we know about. And I think it's important in in advocacy communication terms to recognise what the hot buttons will be. I think government action will help. But politicians are not persuaded by burden of disease data, particularly. Um, so much of it, so many priorities. What, since COVID, they are frightened of now is an infectious disease hazard spreading uncontrollably. And so I think that's the sort of language that, uh, or the risk that they need to be reminded of if they do nothing in areas like this. And of course, the economic aspect of it's important too. As far as the public's concerned, all the surveys show that they're not interested in burden of disease, they're not interested in Armageddon type uh, scenarios. What they're interested in, what does this mean for myself and my family? So they will be persuaded by the argument that if my child has a tonsillitis, 
you know, they may not be treatable and they might die. Those are the sorts of arguments that need to be pitched, I think, and very, very important to align them to the hot buttons that work for politicians and for the public. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's a very important point because one of the um, comments that I've made myself and which, which, is, which is interesting, we've seen this phenomenal both political policy research response to, to the, the pandemic, which is quite appropriate. Um, yet, the, according to the Johns Hopkins data, in the first six months of the pandemic, there are approximately 17 million COVID-19 cases diagnosed, probably an undercount, but then, um, and six, just under 700, just under 700,000 reported deaths. Whereas in the six, same six months from the global burden of disease data, we would expect 25 million cases of non-COVID sepsis and five and a half million deaths. Um, yet, um, no, the coordinated response to those sorts of data uh, is nowhere near as, as great. And I, I think you've hit the nail on the head in saying that it's politicians are afraid of something that's spreading uncontrollably and people in general are scared of something that may affect them and their family, whereas sepsis, um, which is clearly our third uh, topic of conversation, has not reached that level of awareness or, or I, I guess it is fear that has, has driven changes in behavior. Um, I had one, one, maybe one other question um, before we close up, which I would, is how can we incentivize, I mean, both um, Ada um, and Hannah referred to the fact that, that um, basically big farmers moved out of antibiotic uh, development or, or to a large extent has or it, it is there a way I mean, and they are motivated regardless of what uh, we would like people to be um, motivated by altruistic things they are in general they are profit-making organizations responsible to shareholders and uh, so therefore they have to make those business decisions in that model is there a way that we can incentivize new antibiotic development or do we need to look somewhere else for that? Do we need to look to maybe, you know, Gates, Welcome, philanthropists um, to, to try and um, put money into a very, very expensive process um, that is not necessarily going to be profit-making, particularly if we want to get these antibiotics to where the burden is, which is in low middle income countries. Uh, Simon, can I take that question very sure. briefly um, and then I'll hand over to the panel. So there was one slide that maybe I should add um, that can be shared with the audience later on if Marvin can take note, where the WHO played a, a catalytic role in the creation of an AMR action fund based on public health priorities where uh, it was included um, by the pharmaceutical industry, more than 20 companies, um, including Wellcome Trust, the European Investment Bank. And um, 
they came together by trying to bring two to four novel antibacterial treatments to commercialization by 2030. So this was a $1 billion uh, funding pledge. And the initial fundings, uh, the initial hurdles for this specific fund was worked upon for the past um, maybe over a year now. So I hope that there will be um, more uh, information about the AMR Action Fund to try to prioritize, as uh, Ada said, and as I have mentioned and my colleagues on this uh, platform, that the priority here is really the public health good. And antimicrobials should be looked at as public health goods. So I hope this information is, is helpful for the audience, and I'm happy to provide this extra side for, to my slide deck. Over. I think that they, I'm actually very happy to hear that they, they, the initi initiative that we just heard from Hanan is, uh, is going on. And this is the positive way to look at it. The, Negative way is actually partially positive. Companies have to make money. That's the way they they exist. They have to make profit. But uh, antibiotics require a lot of work, very long, very expensive, and the profit may or may not come at the end. And even if it comes, there will be resistance. Therefore, I understand the reasons why the companies are not very happy to jump into it. However, if more and more people will die young from infectious diseases because of the lack of useful antibiotics, they will have less, less customers for their very expensive medications. They will have less people that will reach the age that they need the very expensive uh, medications. So this is a sort of a negative way to talk to the companies and convince them to put more effort into antibiotics. Okay, thanks, Ada. So, so Liam has um, his hand up. One last comment, I think, from him, and then I will make a couple of quick remarks to close this session. Thank you, Simon. And I, I agree with you that money will always uh, rank higher than altruism as far as the pharmaceutical companies. But there is a third ingredient in the argument, which, and it's back to this, again, this very important question about how you frame a problem in order to get a response. And what we do see from pharmaceutical companies is if, if invited to respond to a humanitarian challenge, they will, they will do so. It looks good for them. Um, and it helps their prestige and, and everything else. Um, and that, a good example of that is the extent to which they have contributed to medications for neglected tropical diseases. It's a high profile, they can see an outcome, and it's clearly in the humanitarian space rather than the high technology medicine space. And at the moment, nobody is arguing that uh, antimicrobial resistance is a humanitarian problem. And yet it is in the parts of the world that we've just been talking about. So it's again, how do you drag, if you like, the picture frame on the argument uh, across from the technology, science, um, disease burden over 
to the humanitarian. If you do that, then you'll find at least some of the pharmaceutical companies uh, willing to contribute their products at, at low, low prices or, or not even charge for them at all. Thank you. That's a very, very important and interesting point. And clearly, um, you're, you're something of an expert in changing behavior, which I think is, is what we're talking about. And as a medical researcher, my um, when I conduct clinical trials, I'm always thinking about can I produce data that will change people's behavior? Because that's really, really what we're about to, to get changed to make things better. So um, I, I really like to thank all our speakers. Um, I think this has been a fantastic session. Um, it's covered a lot of very, very important ground. Um, it introduces ideas that will be covered in more detail in the, the following sessions of the Congress, which will be um, running. And obviously we are trying, to, we are addressing a global audience. Uh, it's getting late in the evening where I am, so I won't be sitting up all night to listen to this, but each session will be released. This first session will be released uh, next Tuesday, on Tuesday the 15th, and then each session thereafter um, on subsequent Tuesdays. So um, I know we can't um, clap hands or make our appreciation to our speakers felt in, in any sort of traditional way in this virtual environment. Uh, so, on, but, but uh, I will say to them, reading through the audience chat as they have been speaking, um, all the presentations have been greatly appreciated. There have been too many questions um, to answer. Um, I'm sure that they will be watched, these presentations will be watched by um, thousands of people afterwards. So thank you again. And um, those of you who are in uh, the right time zones can move to the other sessions um, as they move through the night. And thank you to the WHO um, and to my own organization, the, the Global Sepsis Alliance, for putting this together. It's a fantastic um, program ahead um, and I'll say good night from Sydney um, and good whatever time it is in your part of the world and as we're all saying to each other nowadays uh, please stay safe in this very very challenging time good night thanks for listening and thanks to everybody who contributed to make this event possible we will continue with the second session, The Epidemiology and Burden of Sepsis, next Tuesday, September 22, 2020. Until then, have a great week.